Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release rare interviews that need to be heard. In this episode, we are going to try something a little different. Last week, we released a documentary on Black Sabbath's Sabotage album on our YouTube channel. It got over 300,000 views in one week, our highest viewed anything since we started this podcast. We were reluctant to release it as a podcast because of all the visuals, but then we thought about the folks who don't watch YouTube or let's say are in the car, etc. So this episode is our first audio documentary. If you want to watch the video version, we have put the link in the description. Let us know if you love or hate this idea. More interviews are coming soon. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in. And now it's time to open the vault. Most Black Sabbath fans consider Sabotage as the last iconic record of the classic era lineup. Though it contains many of the progressive elements of their prior album, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, in terms of arrangement and instrumentation, it is a decidedly heavier affair than its 1973 predecessor. This time around, the band wanted to pare down the arrangements a bit and go in more direct, heavier approach for what would be their sixth album in exactly as many years. Sabotage would be recorded at Morden Studios in Wilsdon, North London in February and March of 1975 and issued later that year, produced essentially by guitarist Tony Iommi and engineer Mike Butcher. Before arriving at Morgan studio, writing and rehearsal took place at Fields Farm and at lead singer Ozzy Osbourne's house. Though hampered by legal battles, the band persevered and created arguably one of the best records of their entire career and maybe the first progressive metal album. Ironically, to tell Sabotage's tale, we have to first discuss how the band themselves were sabotaged by management. The main characters are Jim Simpson, a club promoter in Sabbath's native Birmingham, England, and the band's first real manager, Patrick Meehan, an up-and-coming manager and the son of Patrick Meehan Sr., who was a more established manager, Wilf Pine, a local henchman and right-hand man to Don Arden. Don Arden, heavyweight manager, connected to the Mafia, current employer of Pine, and former employer of Meehan's father. It's June 1970. Sabbath's first album is on the British music charts, and soon they'll be following it up with their second album, Paranoid. By most indicators, Sabbath was on its way up, but current manager Jim Simpson wasn't getting them paid for gigs like other similar bands. In particular, a band called Black Widow, managed by Patrick Meehan Jr., was getting double what Sabbath made for gigs, even though Widow was not charting or selling records. Before Sabbath's debut album had exploded, Simpson had booked concerts at a much lower rate and would not cancel or renegotiate the originally agreed upon price. Iommi said, It was getting silly. Even the people who ran the clubs we played were going, you should be getting more than this. What are you doing playing here? Knowing of Sabbath's potential financial success and their unhappiness with the way they were being managed, 
Don Arden decided to make a play to take them from Simpson. Known as the godfather of rock and Mr. Big, Arden started out doing stand-up comedy and was particularly known for his impressions of monsters. In the 60s, he went on to sign and manage Gene Vincent and later the Small Faces. Around this time, Arden was also known to leverage a small group of well-muscled friends to intimidate others to see things his way. One example of his license to threaten potential opponents took place back before Led Zeppelin had formed when Jimmy Page and Keith Moon were putting together a band. Page and Moon reached out to Small Faces singer Steve Marriott to see if he might want to join them. The minute Marriott's manager, Don Arden, found out he sent Paige a very clear message. How would you like to play in a band with broken fingers? Marriott stayed with the small faces and Paige went on with his fingers intact. In 1970, Arden put his plan into motion and sent his right-hand man, Wilf Pine, to pick up the band and bring them back to his office. During the meeting, Arden painted a great future but came on too strong when he asked them to sign with his label during their first meeting. Iomi said about the meeting, we just couldn't do that. It was all too bombarding. So we came away thinking, oh God, what are we gonna do now? He'll probably have us killed. He kept getting in touch with us, arranging to take us out to dinner and all that sort of business. He never let go. Then one day, Wilf got in touch and he said, I've got another guy that wants to meet you. This other guy was Patrick Meehan Jr. And after meeting with him, Tony said, he seemed a lot calmer than Arden and said things that we wanted to hear. He just had the right way about it at the time. So they ended up signing with Patrick Meehan and Wilf Pine and their company, Worldwide Artist. A little over 13 months later, Pine would drop out of the partnership and move on to other things. It should be noted that there is an alternate account of why Black Sabbath did not sign to Arden at the time. In the book, One of the Family, The Englishman and the Mafia, it states that Black Sabbath was told Arden was making fun and taking a piss on Black Sabbath at one of their shows. After the band heard this, they did not want anything to do with Arden. According to Pine, it was a misunderstanding and Arden did not make fun of the band. Two weeks before their second album was to be released, Jim Simpson received a lawyer's letter informing him that he no longer represented Black Sabbath, nor was he allowed to contact them directly anymore. Jim wasn't the only one put out by this latest development. When Don Arden, who was still trying to make a backdoor move on the group, found out it was two of his own associates that had plotted behind his back to snatch up Sabbath, he was furious. Issuing threats of retribution, he also offered financial assistance to Simpson, who he encouraged to sue for damages. Simpson did and was later awarded 35,000 pounds, breaking down to 7,500 pounds from the band and 27,500 pounds from Meehan. With Meehan at the helm, Black Sabbath became a genuine international success. The three albums that followed Paranoid, Master of Reality in 1971, Volume 4 in 1972, and Sabbath Bloody Sabbath in 1973 all hit the UK Top 10 and the US Top 20. By 1974, the band had all the trappings of success. The country houses, flashy cars, and unlimited amounts of drugs. <laughs> 
four years on a continual cycle of touring and recording, the band was running on empty, and everything came to a head during a gig at the Hollywood Bowl on the Volume 4 U.S. tour where Tony Iommi collapsed. Ozzy said about the incident, Tony had been doing coke literally for days. We all had, but Tony had gone over the edge. He walked off the stage and collapsed. It was not Tony's day. Earlier that same day, during the sound check, a crazed man tried to stab Tony with a dagger. The religious zealot was stopped by the crew and Tony was not harmed. But as bassist Geezer Butler says, we wanted to take a break after Tony collapsed. So the rest of the gigs for that year were canceled. The following year, 1973, the band embarked on a tour for Sabbath Bloody Sabbath that would take them through February 1974 for the U.S. leg of the tour, just when they thought they could take a well-deserved rest. Before the U.K. and Australian leg of the tour, management called to tell the band that they had been asked to play at one of the largest music festivals at the time, the California Jam, attended by 400,000 fans. Geezer said, We were in England, having just returned from the tour when our management called us and said we had to go back out to do the California Jam. We said no, but we were eventually forced into doing this it. This act has flown in from England just for this concert. A warm United States welcome aboard. Black Sabbath! I shot you! This was just one of the ways Sabbath was getting manipulated by management. Also during this period, and unbeknownst to the band, Patrick Meehan had filtered a large portion of the royalties to himself instead of the band. Even though Black Sabbath played the 1974 California Jam Festival and received a generous quarter of a million dollars for the performance, the band members were paid only $1,000 each for their efforts. Osborne complained. Patrick Meehan never gave you a straight answer when you asked him how much dough you were making. Butler said it more bluntly. We felt we were being ripped off. For Iomi, the situation with Patrick had already become unworkable, even before the band began to question his business dealings. We could never find him when bills had to be paid, Iomi recalled. It was a nightmare, and eventually I was left with no option but to walk away and try to pick up the pieces. The band had long suspected things weren't above board, but they had been too scared and inexperienced to directly question how their affairs were being handled. Despite their aggressive music genre, these masters, in reality, did not like confrontations. As he learned over the summer of 1974, the reality was that they had no control whatsoever over what happened next. It was like the more you found out, the less you wanted to know, said Geezer. It was horrible. Sabbath had been snared the same way countless other acts had in the music business in the 60s. The band spent a fortune in legal fees only to discover that, in effect, they had no real money of their own. The cars they drove, the houses they lived in, all were owned on paper by Patrick Meehan and their management company. Most excruciating of all, and potentially career damaging, they didn't even own their own music. That's why we called the next album Sabotage, said Geezer. We were potless, absolutely broke. If the band had finished there, we would have been totally destitute. So the band broke it off with Meehan and tried their hand at running things themselves. Drummer Bill Ward stepped up to fill the management void, but soon realized he didn't have the proper skill set. His alcoholism didn't help. For a while, there was no manager. Instead, various close friends and co-workers of the band worked together to take care of different duties. 
but none had everything it took to be the actual manager of the band. Ironically, a couple of years later, their would-be savior turned out to be one of the most infamous gangster managers in the music biz, Don Arden, the guy who tried to pressure them into signing with him in 1970. Which, by the way, Arden would eventually become Ozzy's future father-in-law. Even with the formidable figure of Don Arden behind them, the fallout with Meehan would continue to cast a deep shadow over Sabbath throughout the 70s and up into the 90s. For instance, Meehan and company not only mismanaged their back catalog, but they continued to profit from a string of compilation albums of Sabbath's most recognizable material. After years of litigation between the two camps, the band was eventually forced to seek an out-of-court settlement. They agreed to pay an undisclosed amount for breaking their contracts with Meehan, but more costly, Sabbath also agreed to give up their rights to the music released while Patrick was their manager, most of the best work they would ever produce. Meanwhile, due to personality conflicts and health issues, the band was beginning to fracture. Already deep into alcoholism and drug addiction, Bill Ward suffered multiple health problems, a case of hepatitis, and a mild heart attack, to name two. At the same time, Ozzy became increasingly distant from the band due to musical differences and family issues. As many times before, guitarist Tony Elmi took the lead in writing the bulk of the material. Hole in the Sky begins with the hum of amplifiers set at a maximum volume and someone screaming attack. Some people believe the word was chicken, but it wasn't. This scream was an in-joke delivered by producer Mike Butcher. Sabbath had a supporting act who had a manager who would stand behind them on the stage shouting, Attack! Attack! said Butcher. So that's what I shouted from the control room. Hole in the Sky is a dense, purposeful doom classic where you can hear how Tony's guitar tone had gotten even larger than on previous albums as it loomed over the surging swing of Geezer and Bill while Ozzy was forced into another high and dramatic vocal. It begins to become clear that Sabotage would mark the finest vocal performance of Ozzy's career. The sheer anger of the music is emphasized by its abrupt, look-twice ending, segueing instantly into what appears to be one of Tony's sultry acoustic rambles. Following Hole in the Sky is the 49-second acoustic instrumental Don't Start Too Late and was inspired by tape operator David Harris's exasperation with the band plowing into their takes before he'd gotten himself prepared. So that's David saying, don't start, and the band chuckling, too late. The piece is essentially melodically complex, modern classical, but it's a good example of how Sabbath liked a little light and airy interlude before the hulking monster comes to wreck the village.
Wrecking the Village is the supercharged symptom of the universe. From Iomi's staccato riff, driving the monster forward towards Cray's drum fill, the entire band is on the attack. Not until Judas Priest Sin After Sin, two years later, would heavy metal sound this intense and overdriven. And in retrospect, you can practically envision the entire new wave of British heavy metal coming to life. Closing out side one is the 9 minute 46 second, which is the longest self-penned Sabbath tune ever, Megalomania, which is a much more involved piece structurally than anything else before it. Highlights include Iomi's snarling trilling riffs, Ozzy growling out sting me and then later suck me, and Bill Ward's brilliant use of his cowbell to count off another rhythm change. The song is about suffering from paranoia, depression, and delusions. It is, in fact, an actual psychological disorder. A megalomaniac is a pathological egotist with symptoms like delusions of grandeur and an obsession with power. The song Megalomania is somewhat disturbing, fascinating, and exhausting all at the same time, and definitely an ambitious piece of work. Leading off side two is the Angus Young type riff and vastly underrated rocker, The Thrill of It All. The song has a well-used hand clap element years before John Mellencamp's Jack and Diane, as well as some of Ozzy's most expressive, upbeat, and heartfelt vocals. Lyrically, there are some brilliant sentiments here, all couched in religion, as Geezer, who wrote the words, wonders why the world is in such a shambles. Geezer got the title of the song from a book he was reading at the time. The thrill of it all also shows how the band was not sabotaged by management alone. Tape operator David Harris had mistakenly wiped the original master of the song and the band had to re-record it. Rather than get all upset about it, the guys credited him on the album with tape operator and saboteur David Harris. The next song on the album, Superzar, which initially had the working title of We Sell the Worst Chips in the Country, would become the band's intro music for concerts for years to come. Tony wrote it in the confines of his living room with him playing guitar and his wife Sue on the orchestral harp and then later created the choir parts on his Mellotron. It's transformed on the album to a song vaguely reminiscent of the classic Yardbird song, Still I'm Sad. Take a listen and see if you agree. When it came time to record, Tony booked the English Chamber Choir. Not knowing anything about this, Ozzy walked into the studio, saw all these people, and walked out again, thinking he'd gone into the wrong studio. Also during the song's creation, Bill Ward had a mild heart attack and needed to take a 30-day hiatus to recoup.
The seventh track from Sabotage is the uneven and somewhat unpopular fan-wise tune, Am I Going Insane Radio. Ozzy originally constructed this song from a solo album he planned during the downtime between Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and Sabotage. When that idea was scrapped, he brought this tune into the Sabotage sessions. Concerning his aborted plans of going solo, Ozzy later confessed, I wasn't prepared to own up to the rest of the band and I didn't want to give up the success and recognition. Some people assume the radio notation is due to it being a radio edit, but it's not. Radio in the title is Cockney slang referencing a Birmingham business called Radio Rental. Instead of mental, a local would be called Radio Rental, and eventually the phrase would shorten to radio. The song ends with some disturbing laughter voiced by a band friend and then some bizarre hysterical crying from what sounds like a mental patient. According to Bill Ward, the crying came from a tape of Ozzy's daughter, Jessica, played at half speed. But engineer Mike Butcher said the crying came from an unidentified tape found in the studio. No one knows for sure. The Writ is probably the most formidable and biting song of the classic lineup era. It's also Sabbath at their most progressive. The lyrics were written mostly by Ozzy, as opposed to usually being handled by Butler, and pertain to the lawsuit with their former manager, Patrick Meehan, that was plaguing the band during the recording of Sabotage. Delivering the song's spitting venom with manic savagery, Ozzy sounds particularly angry and scornful, especially in this section of the song, where he starts off by taking shots at Patrick Meehan and his father. was apparently suggested by engineer co-producer Mike Butcher after one of the manager's lawyers had delivered a writ to the studio during the recording. A writ is an order issued by a legal authority with administrative or judicial powers, typically a court. Ironically, the same year Sabbath released Sabotage, fellow Brit band Queen released a diss track as well about their former manager. You will find the same level of seething anger from Freddie Mercury on the song Death on Two Legs. Suck my blood like a leech. You break the law and you breach. Screw my brain till it hurts. You're taking all vitriol in the writ, there was a note of hope and defiance in its closing line. Whatever thing is going on, why? 
in the short term, at least those words would ring true. Patrick Meehan would not break Black Sabbath. In the spring of 1975, a month after recording was finished in London, Mike Butcher flew to New York to oversee the mixing and mastering of Sabotage. And it was there that the producer added at the end of the writ a 31 second snippet of music he had recorded without the band's knowledge. Microphones were plugged in all around the studio, Butcher explained. So one night when Ozzy and Bill were messing around the piano, I pushed the record button. What he captured was a joke song named Blow on the Jug. This stupid fucking thing, said Ward, a drunken song that Ozzy and me would sing together in a van or on a plane. That's me on the piano and Ozzy blowing on one of those brown cider jugs, playing it like a tuba. Ward insisted he had no idea that Blow on the Jug would end up on the album. Originally, it only appeared on early pressings. The rumor that the Nitty Gritty Band originally played the song Blow on the Jug is not true. The real story comes from a Hollywood festival Sabbath played in 1970 along with Mungo Jerry. At the time, Sabbath saw these festivals as a competition and who would win over the crowd. During one performance, Mungo Jerry busted out some jugs and the crowd went wild. He was playing fucking jugs and he stole the day, Ozzy said. After Mungo Jerry, we didn't have a hope blowing on fucking jugs. Just as the Beatles followed the melody on side two of Abbey Road, the lighthearted and totally unnecessary Her Majesty, so Sabbath closed the monumental sabotage with a similar tribute. Only theirs is to Mungo Jerry. Now, with all the music recorded, the band needed to create an album cover. Sabotage was the first album to display the group on its front cover. The original idea for the record's artwork was based on a famous painting by the surrealist artist René Magritte, named Not To Be Reproduced. A man in a dark suit is standing facing a mirror. The reflection in the mirror shows the man's back, not his front. In essence, his image has been sabotaged. The concept was conceived by Bill Ward and his drum roadie, Graham Wright, and executed and overseen by the Amsterdam design company, Cream, also known as the Cream Group. Originally, the idea was to go for a corridor from a Dracula castle type thing. Sabbath was going to be standing in black suits in front of full-length mirrors hanging from the wall, and the reflected image was supposed to be reversed like Magritte's. The job of making all of this happen fell to the record company Vertigo, which announced the photo shoot a couple of weeks later. Instead of an old castle, the photo session would take place in a small photography studio in Soho. The band showed up thinking they were just meeting to talk about the album cover, not to shoot it. In fact, Ozzy showed up in a kimono, a homo in a kimono, as he would later describe his appearance. Bill wore his wife's revealing red tights, but he never wore underwear. 
Ward said of the shoot, I had this old pair of jeans that were really dirty, so I borrowed my wife's tights. And so that my bullocks wouldn't show up under the tights, I also borrowed Ozzy's underpants because I had none. We think we found some proof that Mr. Ward is telling the truth. If you take a look at the back of the Sabotage album cover, you can see Bill Ward's underwear that he says is Ozzy's. Now, look at this picture of Ozzy wearing underwear. You be the judge. Thinking they would superimpose the images at a later time, they rushed through the photo shoot, and the outcome was far from what had been envisioned. Ironically, once again, the sleeve design was intended to illustrate the idea of sabotage, but had instead become a victim of sabotage itself. By the time the band had a chance to review, it was too late to change the cover. They hated it. What we are left with is a cover that manages to be simultaneously embarrassing and perversely endearing. Upon release in late 1975, Sabotage got a mixed reaction. You had fans and critics raving about the album, including Rolling Stone critic Billy Altman, who wrote, Sabotage is not only Black Sabbath's best record since Paranoid, it might be their best ever. But the sales of the album painted a different picture. Sabotage was the first Black Sabbath album that did not achieve platinum status in the US, and though it reached number seven in the UK, it completely fell off the charts after a few weeks. To date, Sabotage is still not platinum in the US, having only sold 900,000 copies. But the album has sold over 2.5 million copies worldwide, ranking it the seventh best-selling Sabbath album. The album's called Sabotage, the new one. The number titled Symptom of the Universe. Behind the scenes, things continued to unravel. Just as Sabbath felt they had begun to get free of the mess they found themselves in after breaking with Patrick Meehan, their former manager struck another blow, authorizing the release in December of a double album compilation entitled We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, featuring all their biggest hitters from their first five albums. The double album was released to coincide with the Christmas present buying season, and Sabbath didn't know whether to be pleased or not. Worse, the band members made no money whatsoever from this marketing scheme. In some respects, Sabotage seems like an album with no real identity or unifying theme. Yet as good as the album is, it's also an album where you can tell the wheels are starting to come off a bit. This would become far more evident in Black Sabbath's next release, where the band not only lost the wheels, but the whole car fell apart. That album, Bill Ward says, it was so hard for us making it. But when I listen back to it now, God, it's incredible. We'd just like to say, on behalf of the guys and myself, you're a good bunch of people and we love each and every one of you. Good night, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.